I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. It's lovely to have you all here to celebrate the publication of Out There by Kate Folk. Kate's short stories and essays have appeared or will appear in the New Yorker, New York Times Magazine, Granta, McSweeney's name a few. And the work has been described as the literary love child of Kafka, Camus and Bradbury penning episodes of Black Mirror. So it's entirely appropriate that we have talking to Kate this evening, writer, producer, comedian, actor, Sharon Horgan, who will be co-writing a TV series with Kate based on a couple of the stories in this book. Thank you all very much for being here. Over to Sharon. Hi to everyone watching. I'm really excited about this conversation and I'm really excited about everyone getting a chance to read this book because I've known about it for quite a while now. The story out there, which I, I would say kickstarted it, isn't that right, Kate? That ran in the New Yorker in March 2020. So I think that's when I first came to hear about it. It became a bit of a viral sensation. It was a story about a young San Francisco millennial finally putting herself back out there after uh, her last bad breakup and doing that by joining sort of uh, dating apps. But unfortunately, 50% of the single men on the dating apps are blots. And blots, in Kate Folk's world, are fake men. And these fake men, well, they whine and dine women, um, they encourage them to fall for them, and then they steal their data that's stored in their phone. And they exploit them and shame them along the way, and then they disappear into a cloud of lavender mist. And when our heroine in the story does meet a man, the only way she convinces herself that he's not a blot is just by working out what a shit boyfriend he is. A blot would never treat her like that. So the story ends with her drifting towards this blot alternative. At least she knows that, you know, the way he will hurt her. So I don't know, Kate, meeting someone in this day and age is, is difficult enough, right? But you've just, you've made it terrifying, I think. What kickstarted you to write this story and to write about the blots? And, and I suppose as a follow-up, who or what was your influence for this kind of storytelling? Yeah, I mean, I think it was just doing online dating myself. I wrote the first version of the story, I think, in 2016 when I was on like Tinder and all the apps and having all these interchangeable conversations with men in the Bay Area and um, feeling like it wouldn't even matter if some of them were bots or something because it was just <laughs> kind of getting like a hit of validation or attention or, you know, a sense of intimacy with another person, like before I went to sleep or something, and then that was enough at the time for me. So, yeah, and just like all those small talk conversations, which can feel very robotic on both ends, and just kind of proceeding through the motions that are very set in advance. And, and also, I think the blots were inspired just by all the scams that surround us constantly, like all the spam emails and scam phone calls and text messages and all of that and, and how there can be like an uncanniness to to like a spam email right like the language is just slightly off sometimes it's almost there but it's just like a little off and you can tell it's not the person they say they are or it's not you know what it says it is and so i, I was picturing the blots kind of as a spam email come to life in in a very perfect physical form and I just thought it would be funny to have these very handsome male bots scamming women on the apps because I had heard that there was a lot of scamming of men by um, supposedly female bots on like Tinder, but it didn't seem like there was as much going the other direction. So Yeah, and I, I noticed that some of the reviews had picked up that in popular culture, female androids and AIs were are sort of sexualized and treated like you know potential sex partners like 
you know, in her or, or Westworld, but male androids are always sort of strong, violent, like Terminator and, you know, Blade Runner. So did you, you know, you're turning that sort of gendered trope on its head without there. In fact, we mentioned it in our in our pitch meetings quite a bit, didn't we, when we, we were selling the show. What made you approach the blots in this way to sort of make them, you know, kind of handsome, delicate, sort of almost, almost lovable? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think actually Terminator 2, um, like Arnold Schwarzenegger's character in that was kind of an inspiration for the blots because he is like a machine to, you know, protect someone and to do violence to other people. But then when he bonds with John Connor or whatever, um, he's like so endearing. And when he's learning like how to make jokes and how to, you know, not kill people if he doesn't have to and that kind of thing, like he's... Their friendship is like the sweetest part of that movie and because it's contrasted especially with this like hyperviolence. But yeah, I mean I think that a lot of it too was just like using my own experience as a woman dating men and out there is has a lot of autobiographical elements. Not all of it of course, but definitely like the voice is kind of my voice and well it is now that I know you better it is your voice but it took me a while to kind of figure that out because I was like oh no this is my voice <laughs> across the book I mean that we'll talk about that later but there's so much that links all the stories in that alienated female kind of story matter we'll talk about that in a bit I mean I've blown a lot of smoke up your bum over the last two years but I <laughs> I was so happy that this book was so good you know because having read out there which is a shortish story and then and then Big Sur which is like is it called a novella or is it still a short story I, I never really know the difference but but like yeah. this collection of every single story I found hilarious and terrifying and tender and I read a review actually yesterday where the reviewer said when she was reading I'm trying to remember which story it was oh it, oh, it was the the bone <laughs> the bone word yeah she had to put her hand over her mouth at the end of it to yeah. stop from screaming I felt like that I had to get up and walk around the room and my daughter said what's wrong and I um I tried to explain but it was it was pretty hard I was like you're gonna have to read the story I think it would be a great idea for you to read a bit of this story when we were when we first read it it was it was kind of doing the rounds and everyone was talking about it and then there was this sort of bidding war for the, you know, the rights to, to adapt this story for, for TV. And we were lucky enough with a lot of help. Merman, I mean, my company, were lucky enough with a bit of help or a lot of help from Small Dog and 20th Century to, to get the uh, to get the chance to make it. But if you could read us a little bit of it, then um, people might understand what all the fuss is about. Yeah, definitely. So I'll just read a really brief section from the title story out there that we've been talking about, um, which I think especially gives you an idea of, of the voice that we were talking about. The early blots had been easy to identify. They were too handsome, for one thing. Their skin was smooth and glowing, and they were uniformly tall and lean, jawlines you could cut bread with. They were the best-looking men in any room and had no sense of humor. I met one of these early blots several years ago. My friend Peter had invited me to a dinner party hosted by a tech founder he'd grown up with in the Sunset District and with whom he'd once followed the band Fish around the country, selling nitrous to concert goers. Peter and I didn't really hang out beyond the meetings we attended in church basements for people who no longer drank. But I was bored and it was a free dinner and Peter made it sound like he'd already asked a bunch of other people who'd said no, which took some of the pressure off. At dinner, I sat next to a guy named Roger. He had the telltale blot look, high forehead, lush hair, shapely eyebrows. But I didn't recognize him for what he was because the blot phenomenon hadn't yet been exposed. Roger was solicitous, asking about my family, my work as a teacher, and my resentment toward the tech industry. When I declined the server's offer of wine, Roger's golden eyes flared with recognition, and he asked if I was in recovery. I said yes for five years at that point, 
and he nodded gravely, saying he admired my commitment to this lifestyle. His dear aunt was also sober. Roger seemed eager to charm, but I was not charmed. I felt spotlighted by his attentiveness, his anticipation of what I might want. Another helping of fava bean salad, more water, an extra napkin when I dropped a chunk of braised pork on my skirt. I would say something self-deprecating, and he'd regard me steadily and assure me that I was a wonderful person, deserving of all I wanted from life, which wasn't what I'd been asking for. Roger didn't know me and wasn't a credible judge of my worth, unless his position was that all people had worth, which made him no judge at all. When I shifted the subject to him, he supplied a backstory that seemed pre-written. I came from ranch land in the northern United States, he told me. My father was stern but loving in his way. My mother is a wonderful woman who raised the four of us into strong, capable adults. My childhood was not without hardship, but these adversities shaped me into the person I am today. Now I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, land of innovation and possibility. I am grateful for the life I've been given, and I know it is thanks to the people who have loved and supported me on the journey. I forced a chuckle of acknowledgement. Wow, I said, that's great. As I drove Peter back to the Richmond district in my decrepit Corolla, he revealed that his friend, the event's host, had sprinkled the dinner party with blots. Blots? It's an acronym for something, Peter said. They're biomorphic humanoids, the latest advancement in the field of tactile illusion. He paused. Fake people, he added. I concealed my shock, not wanting to give Peter the satisfaction. So you invited me to be the subject of a Turing test for some company's new product without compensation, I said. You got a free dinner, didn't you? Well, he was boring, I said, and too handsome. I hate guys like that. Handsome guys? Yeah, I'm not attracted to them. Peter said he hoped I'd written all this on the comment card that had been distributed with the gelato, which asked me to rate my dinner companion's various attributes. I'd given Roger all fives, out of habit, and in retrospect, I was glad not to have aided the Blatt Revolution with my honest feedback. I'll stop there. It's funny how how much of that ended up in the in the pilot script actually that that dinner mm -hmm. party because I remember when we read it first that was just one of the real standout moments um when when she meets Roger and that introduction to the blots but also I mean when we first started talking to you about it we had to convince you to you know, to come to us, to, to make it with us. And I remember being extremely nervous on, on the call because I can't remember what part of the um, pandemic we were actually in, but I'd sort of lost the ability to communicate properly. And it was a whole, a whole bunch of us on this uh, this call trying to convince you to to do it with us. And we did our research and we, you know, read about you and, 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 you know, read the story several times. And we had this pitch for you for how we could make it work. But we were kind of finding it hard to talk about how it could be made into a returning series and then you were like well have you read the other story have you read um big sir and we were like oh for fuck's sake no we didn't know that there was another story so we went off and we read that and then we came back to you with our proper pitch which basically ended up kind of well, like the script does now, combining the out there story and, and Big Sur. And Big Sur is, yeah, one of my favorite things. But it's basically the out there story from the Blot's perspective, isn't it? It's a prequel to Out There. It's It takes place because in the story Out There, you know, everyone already knows about the Blot's. They're kind of a known threat. And then in Big Sur at the beginning, the blots are still active, they're using dating apps to target women, and, and no one knows about them yet. So yeah, it's a story about um, a woman named Meg falling in love with a blot named Roger without knowing he's a blot. Um, and it's told from both her point of view and Roger's point of view. So, and it's, you know, there's mention of a Roger in the story out there too, the narrator meets, but I wasn't thinking them as of them as exactly the same Roger. Maybe there's just like a Roger type of right. plot. Right, yeah. A certain model. We, we kind of sort of amalgamated them, I guess, for that, for that script. Mm -hmm. But in Meg, who, when she discovers that her awkward new really attentive, gorgeous boyfriend, Roger, is a blot. She initially sort of banishes him, decides not to see him again. But then after, you know, he's abandoned and he's sort of homeless and desperate and she starts to 
sympathize with him, but she also starts to miss him. She puts herself back sort of out there on the dating scene and, and, and starts realizing <laughs> that the alternative, which is the real man, isn't really um, up to much. And she sort of makes this decision, which is going to hurt her. And she knows exactly the way in which it's going to hurt her, but she, she does it anyway. It makes me so sad. It's, but at the same time, it's still a hopeful story, isn't it? You still like root for that romance. And I think one of the first things I said to you when we were pitching was that I, I wanted to, you know, create a, a romance that really people shouldn't root for, but they can't help themselves. And, and that's, I think, what you feel about these two characters in, in Big Sur. It's so romantic, Kate. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Big Sur, and um, I don't know if you mentioned, like, the way the collection is structured, it's bookended by these two blot stories. So um, we start with Out There and we end with Big Sur. And I feel like it also, it completes, like, an overall emotional arc of the collection because the way that I, I thought about structuring the stories, it's like the first half of the book is more characters searching for something, yearning for something, and being kind of dissatisfied and not being able to find that thing in the end. And then the bone war, which you mentioned, is, you know, the story about people whose bones melt at night, and it's like a love triangle, and it's very, very dark, especially the ending. And so I thought of that as kind of the darkest point of the collection, like hitting rock bottom, and then and that's right in the middle. And then from there, it kind of rises up again toward the light. Um, and becoming more hopeful, more with characters, finding what they were looking for, even if it's like in Moist House, like a symbiotic relationship between a man and a house that he has to constantly apply lotion to and that <laughs> kind of like takes over his life. You know, it's like uh, the characters are more seeking and then finding what they were looking for, even if to us it seems like a strange thing to be looking for. And Big Sur yeah. is definitely, you know, the final... The conclusion of that and it, it feels to me like a very complete love story as well yeah not not a typical one i mean it's very very singular how, how you tell your stories and i i did want to ask you about how, how you put those stories together and, and how you sort of worked it out because there seems to be so many running themes throughout them the New York Times declared the stories to be about the distance between aloneness and loneliness I thought that was really apt, but it did make me think, well, I, I could relate to so much of it. And it did make me wonder how you felt about putting yourself out there as a writer, because a lot of those themes, you can't help but think, you know, all of them clearly and obviously come from you. But in a way, even though you're writing through genre, you're still putting yourself out there. Do you know what I mean? Were you concerned about that at all or, or, or not? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like the process of publishing a book takes so long. Um, I mean, similar with like TV or something, you know, it's like the process is so, there's so much time between each step. So maybe that helped to kind of soften the anxiety about it because if it was like, oh, the book's coming out next week and then that would probably be, like unbearable um, but yeah yeah so I guess having having time with it and having having time with the stories like some of the stories in the book like I wrote years ago and have been kind of redrafting and, and editing since then and so it feels like they've been with me for such a long time that it just seems they seem so like logical to me even though I think for someone reading a story like some of the weirder stories in the book it, it might seem really out of left field but to me it just like makes perfect sense yeah and I think the you know the process like the intermediary process uh, steps in the process of like having stories placed in journals and kind of you know having a writing community and all of that I think makes it feel less like just putting out this first book into into a hostile world and not knowing what people <laughs> think of it but but it's still yeah. I mean it's like up and down you know it is yeah it's definitely like a very vulnerable thing to to publish a book and have just total strangers reading it and yeah and opinions about it so 
Well, we've got some total strangers here, so maybe you could read a little bit more. And as out there is the first story in the book, it would be really nice to hear its companion piece and, and the closer in the book, Big Sur. Yeah, so um, I thought that I would just read a little from Big Sur about the same length of excerpts. So because we mentioned this story as well as in the show, you know, it's kind of half from Roger's point of view, half Meg's point of view. And so um, I wanted to give everyone a taste of Roger the Blatt's point of view. So this is from Big Sur. Roger had arranged a date with Meg for Friday night. Late Thursday, he asked Steve for advice on how to proceed without repeating the mistakes he'd made with Sasha. Steve had just returned from his second date with Marissa. He'd achieved sex with Marissa, and now Roger kneeled at his feet, helping to extract Marissa's data from his penis. You can't be too eager, Steve counseled. Roger paused in his work to look up at Steve. But it is good to be eager, isn't it? He said, then continued gathering data from Steve's genitals using the sterile swab. Only once in a while, Steve said. You have to conceal your excitement so that in the rare moments you expose it, the woman is surprised and works to elicit further excitement. Steve complete, Roger completed the swabbing and transferred the data to a vial that Steve would mail to headquarters in the morning. He stood, and Steve put his hand on Roger's shoulder. Thank you, he said. I find it difficult to perform the extraction myself. Understandably, Roger said. I am happy to help. I hope that when you achieve sex, I can return the favor. I would like that, Roger said, though he was starting to fear this would never happen. He felt the pressure of Steve's hand on his shoulder, and it occurred to him, in a flash of pain, that Steve didn't believe it would happen either, and was only saying this to comfort him, out of pity. Roger and Steve curled together on Steve's bed, Roger's arms flung across Steve's chest. He liked it when it was just the two of them here, in the little room with the sink in which they took turns urinating. He knew that soon, Steve would take Marissa to Big Sur. Each roommate had gotten there more quickly than the previous one, and perhaps his next roommate would be so efficient, Roger would not even have a chance to help with the extraction. Let's try something, Steve whispered. Tell me again about shelling beans with your aunt. I remember my aunt's stoic face as she squinted into the marsh where the alligators dwelled, recounting the beatings she endured as a child at the hands of my cruel grandfather, Roger said. No, Steve said. That's too much, Roger. Do you tell this to the women you're hoping to achieve sex with? Of course, Roger said. It is the truth of my past life. Don't you have any other memories? Roger thought for a moment. I remember my aunt's boyfriend, who rode a motorcycle and smoked methamphetamine, and who once forced me to murder an owl that had roosted in the eaves of our porch. Oh dear, Steve murmured. I was a poor shot, Roger said, shuddering at the memory. The owl did not perish quickly. Okay, what about since you've lived in San Francisco? Do you have any pleasant memories? Roger thought of his various roommates, how they held each other after he extracted data from their penises. But this seemed too personal. He did not want to tell Steve about the roommates who came before him, and a memory that involved Steve directly didn't seem like what Steve was asking for. He thought of the dinner party. I remember Meg, Roger said, how she used the tines of a fork to remove the ice cubes from her glass of water so they would not inflict pain on her teeth. Okay, that's better, Steve said. She placed the cubes on the tablecloth where they melted and formed a dark patch on the linen. That's very good, Steve said. Women like when you perceive small things about them. Should I text her immediately, recounting this memory? Steve paused. Perhaps not, he said. Remember, you can't seem too eager. Yes, you are right, Roger said. I will wait to tell her in person. Roger remained still until he knew that Steve was asleep. Then he untangled his limbs from Steve's, urinated into the sink, and returned to his own bed. He imagined Meg smiling beneath the brim of a large, soft hat. I'll stop there. You stopped just when I was about to sneeze, but um. Oh. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess I, I should have said so. Like in 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 Big Sur, it's like the Blots live together at this like kind of residential hotel in San Francisco, and they call them like piss in the sink hotels, basically, where there's just a sink and then a shared bathroom down the hall. So he's roommates with this other Blot named Steve, who's a bit more socially adept than Roger at seducing women. Roger's maybe like an earlier model and can't quite hack it. So Roger's just an absolute adorable um, character.
it was a very funny thing in the pitching meetings getting to describe that um, ex extraction um, scene and wondering how everyone was going to uh, tell us to get out of the room or um, come on board. There's so many beautiful, absurd moments in that story, but I, uh, I think one of the great achievements of it is how much you you love and warm to Roger, despite the fact that you know he's going to, um, you know, destroy her life. Really, can we talk about? Because obviously you've been involved on both sides now with pitching and 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 selling and adapting for TV versus. You know, I guess pitching and selling and, and putting together short stories for publishing. Like, what, what's the what was the big difference? Are they? Do you, did you find them both as difficult, or are you are you better in a in a room, sort of working on your own? I think I am definitely better in a room by myself, um, just writing. Yeah, you know, like writing fiction is my first love, and I feel like it's what I've kind of been training for all these years. And so it's been just kind of a fun break to get to work on other stuff and, and work with you. And, you know, TV is so much more collaborative and... and In an annoying kind of way uh, or... or Because you are, you are a really great collaborator, but you also super know your own mind like you know when we when we sort of back and forth scripts and I like add a bunch of stuff and then you'll sort of fire it back to me and then you'll have taken sort of swathes of stuff you, you, you don't agree with which is what you should do but it's um it just seemed to come very sort of naturally to you and also that just sort of innate confidence and part of our pitch which probably made you feel very uncomfortable was you know, talking to these, you know, networks and streamers and, and talking about how confident your voice is and like the way Sally Rooney has created a, a Rooneyverse. We're going to have to think of something that works more now because I feel exactly the same. Like in a, in the sort of form of a short story, it, it's perfect, but you can naturally bring those worlds to life in script writing as well, which is really something. Well, that's good to hear. Sorry, I didn't realize that I had shot down so many of your ideas. But I'm sorry that that, that was your perception. I, I, think, um, I think it was absolutely the, the right thing to do, completely. But it is a bit of a weird world, isn't it? Having to, to go yeah. into rooms and set your stall out and do a little um, show and tell people yeah. what it's going to be before you have a chance to sort of figure out what it is, you know? Yeah, and it's like in, in scripts, and I think that you showed me this just when we were deciding, like, what should happen in each episode, like, planning out episodes, you know. At first I was like, oh, just, like, a few things can happen, and maybe they, like, get to know each other a little more, and that seems good. Because, <laughs> you know, in fiction yeah. that would be, it's like a chapter of a, a novel is just kind of building the characters and the relationship, but it's, like, in TV, like, so much more stuff needs to be happening all the time. Like You do have to constantly, because because there is so much great tv out there now you know you have to give uh, people a reason to come back it can't just be a lovely time you know it has to there has to be a, a sort of cliffhanger or you you need to keep pressing that button kind of thing i mean as long as, long as your source material is is all right then you're grand but it's it can it can be a little stressful one thing I've noticed about your writing is just how visual it is and there are so many stories in in this collection that are that I immediately want to see dramatized there's heart seeks brain which is one of the very short ones where instead of someone being a boob man they they have a thing for kidneys or spinal fluid Bone Ward, which is another one of my favorites that I was saying made me sort of pace around my kitchen in a panic, in which people ha um, have diseases uh, where their bones turn to liquid. And your description of what these <laughs> what these people look like when this happens, just immediately, I just immediately want to see it dramatized. I don't know what that says about me, but <laughs> uh, another really short story called The Last Woman on Earth. And you've given The Last Woman on Earth a talk show and some somehow through that device you've managed to encapsulate how people and men in particular would respond to um the world ending there's so much visual incredible terrifying and hilarious visual imagery in there 
And I, I mean, I, I really want, I've got so much I want to ask you about, but I really love you to read a little bit more of one of those. If you could read The, the Head and the Floor, which is a, an, a short story that comes sort of midway, is it midway through the, the collection? Yeah, yeah, it's midway. And it, it again, it's, I read it out loud to a friend of mine and we, we laughed all the way through it and also <laughs> wanted to see it, see it made somehow. Oh, cool. Yeah, that would be great. Um, so yeah, this is this is the last section I'll read. I'll just read the whole story. And there's a, a few stories in here that are, are kind of preoccupied with weird houses and living spaces, kind of sentient rooms or things coming alive and turning against the people living there, which we can maybe talk about what I suspect is the inspiration for that in my subconscious or whatever. But um, yeah, so this story is called The Head and the Floor. To be honest, things weren't going so well even before the head, the head started coming out of my floor. I was unemployed and universally hated thanks to some choices I'd made. Afternoons, I'd go sit in this median strip a few blocks from my apartment and write things in my notebook while cars barreled past. Sometimes I brought a, I brought a guitar. First, it was just a soft patch. I figured maybe, you know, the floor was rotting. What did I know about floors? I thought of men I could text to ask them about the slight bruise in my floor. I was a little hard up in terms of people to text because, like I said, first I texted this guy Lee. I texted Lee saying there's a soft spot in my floor and could he come over and check it out? Does he know something about floors? When he came over, Lee was wearing a nice shirt and like product in his hair, maybe even cologne. Lee pressed his fingers into the soft spot in my floor. Then he kind of like recoiled and said I should call my landlord. I wasn't going to do that. I've lived in this apartment six years and never once have I called the landlord. One of my windows won't open and another won't close. The toilet appears to be eating itself. The lock on my door is broken sometimes. Sometimes I'm trapped in my apartment for days until the humidity drops and I can slide the deadbolt out again. Lee asked if I wanted to like watch a movie and I said no and he looked sad but said okay. He left and I put a towel over the soft spot in my floor. After a few days, I could no longer deny that the towel was bulging up in the middle. So I peeled it back and there was like the top of the head with straight brown hair. It was cresting, you know, like when they talk about the baby's head poking out, out of the woman. It was the same thing, but you know, my floor. I texted this guy, Chris, and was like, hey, Chris. So Chris came over. He also seemed sort of a little bit more dressed up than the last time I saw him, though to be honest, I don't remember when that was or who Chris even is. He brought pizza. So I'm like, that's cool, better than Lee. Lee didn't bring anything. When he saw the top of the head, he, I mean Chris, well, you could tell he wasn't expecting that. He brought his tools, too. I didn't mention that. Both pizza and tools, way better than Lee. I asked Chris to touch it, you know, to see if it was warm. He said he didn't want to. I said this is why I asked him to come over. This is what I needed him for. So Chris looked like he was going to throw up or, like, collapse in upon himself like a dead star due to the sudden revelation of, like, the harrowing absurdity, futility, pain. I mean of existence. He laid the towel carefully over the head. I thought you just wanted to hang out, he said. He sounded like wounded. He took the pizza with him. So at this point, I was starting to regret that everyone hates me and how all I do all day is sit in the median, this like three foot wide strip of grass between six lanes of traffic and pretend I'm writing in a notebook or pretend I'm playing guitar. Pretty soon I'd run out of guys to text to come over and help me with the human head coming out of my floor. The towel helped. I'm not going to sit here and tell you the towel did nothing. The last number in my phone of a man who did not yet know me well enough to hate me was Brandon, who I probably went on some sort of date with at some point in my life. I think Brandon said we should hang out again, and I was like, yeah, and then when he named an actual day of the week, I never responded and deleted all our texts. Brandon didn't bring anything, and he seemed annoyed. I wasn't sure why he came, but I was glad to have him there when I lifted the towel. You could just make out the upper edge of the eyebrows. Brandon agreed it was a man's head. You could tell. It's not just because of the size. I'm saying you can tell. I asked Brandon if it touched the top of the head to see if it was warm, meaning alive. Brandon said no. I said someone has to. He said it's your floor. I gave him this look. He sighed and told me how when we went on a date four years ago, I was really rude. I tried to remember this date. I remembered lots of other dates, but none of those guys' faces looked like Brandon's, not really. I felt like I could grab Brandon's wrist and put his hand on the head before he realized what was happening, then would know. 
I told Brandon I was sorry, even though I couldn't remember the state we supposedly went on. Well, I said, would you want to stay here with me while the head rises out of my floor? Of course, I expected him to say no. Any normal person would abandon me to this horror that is, after all, my burden and no one else's. Or tell me to call the landlord, which, you know, that's off the table. But Brandon got this look like an utter defeat and sighed again and went, yeah, okay. So I broke my median routine and now I stay in the apartment with Brandon all day. We mostly ignore each other. He works on his laptop because he's a freelancer. I don't know what kind. He told me, but I guess I didn't care. Sometimes I look over at him and wonder what fundamental and overpowering sadness there is inside of him that compels him to stay here with me while the head rises from my floor. But I'm not going to say anything because like, what if he leaves? It's been five days since Brandon joined me. The head continues to rise. We lift the towel every two hours to check on it. It's rising at the rate of about a quarter inch per day. So by 6 a.m. tomorrow, there will be the eyes. This is like what it's all been building up to. We're excited, but we also feel like maybe, you know, maybe it's too late now. Maybe before someone could have done something, something could have been done. The eyes are blue and like alert. They're blinking at what you might call normal intervals. I mean to say they're alive, looking at us. They seem like they're in an okay mood, like not tortured at least. That's a relief. That answers at least one of our questions. Now that we have the eyes, we feel like we can talk to the head like we're all in this thing together. Hey buddy, we say, how's it going? We only ask to be polite. The head can't respond because its mouth is still on the floor. If it even has a mouth. Sometimes we tell the head stories about our lives. When the head gets bored of our stories, its eyes close and we stop. We don't put the towel back over the head. It seems like now there's the matter of like human rights. We figure it'll be a few more days and there'll be the mouth and then we'll clear some things up. All along, I've been hoping it'll be like six months and then the whole man is up out of the floor. I imagine he's wearing a suit and he'll straighten his tie and shake my hand and walk out my door and the floor will kind of neatly seal up after him. So like, I won't have to tell my landlord after all or adjust in any small way the constituents of this miserable life that is after all my burden and no one else's. But days pass and it's still just the eyes and they're always awake and staring at me and Brandon, unless we're standing behind it. It isn't rising anymore, the head. Like, it's stuck. Or maybe that's all there is. Maybe it's been just the top third of a head all along. After a few weeks, we put the towel back over the head. Since then, it's been a few more months. Brandon seems to live with me. I've started going out to the median strip again. I don't know. We don't really talk, me and Brandon. We've never touched each other. At first, I thought he wanted to. But now I'm not really too sure. It's the end. I love it. I love that story. I'm just going to quickly ask you this whole, you know, running um, theme of buildings as living, breathing things. A lot of the characters in your book, male and female, choose bricks and mortar over uh, flesh and, and bone. And, you know, often the dwellings become humanized and the houses are physical, breathing things. The house is a beating heart and shelter, a moist house that all, that all of those, I mean, especially shelter where a woman decides to encased herself in a shelter in her basement rather than be with her boyfriend because the relationship's just gotten really bad. <laughs> I love the imagery of it and I love how it makes you feel and I sometimes really understand where they're coming from but what brought you to that imagery of the houses as physical breathing things? Yeah it's, it's weird it's like I feel like I go through certain phases like before the the houses thing I was always writing about people getting like kidnapped and held captive somewhere for some reason that was an earlier stage but I think that a lot of it comes from kind of housing anxiety living in San Francisco and feeling like like I, I did move last summer but before that I had lived in the same studio apartment in the Richmond district in San Francisco for 10 years and and I loved like my little apartment you know but it felt like and everyone I talked to in San Francisco feels the same way where it's like if you have a rent control apartment you can never leave it like you have to just hang on to it forever or else make a bigger move to like leave San Francisco entirely and so especially around the time I was writing a lot of those stories which was like you know 2015 to 2018 maybe the housing market was just like going up and up and up and it was felt like the pressure was continually building and so yeah this feeling of like kind of hating this one room that I had lived in for so long but also loving it and feeling very attached to it and feeling like I couldn't call attention to myself 
to my landlord because then they would realize that I was still there. Like, which, that makes so much sense. I get it. Yeah, I'm feeling feeling almost like the the living space as like a part of me, like it was part of my body. And so when yeah, something would go wrong, it would feel really personal and um, wow. and horrible. And so yeah, horror stories about like living quarters. I think for making their way into a lot of my work. I mean, I also wanted to ask you about because there, there, there is another running theme. I think about like contempt for a certain kind of employment. You know, like a lot of the jobs that are described within the short stories, hawking creams and gels and cosmetic procedures to women online or copywriting. There's a lot of copywriting, you yeah. know, exactly like, <laughs> like, well, you know, certainly in, in these cases, dull jobs. Did you spend, I don't know, a bunch of your 20s working in unsatisfying jobs that pushed you towards writing in that way I, I never did that much copywriting actually like a little bit but I think I always you know after I got my MFA in writing which was in like 2011 so it was a while ago I think I was always just finding trying to find jobs that made sense as a writer and that I could yeah. also write yeah. and and so what I settled on more was teaching which I still do some of and I actually really love teaching um, but yeah I, I think I Maybe I should branch out more and, and like in the novel I'm writing now, the main character has like a job that I've never had. And so maybe I'm going into new territory with that. But yeah, I, I think I, I, I ended up writing about I, all I ever wrote about was people in advertising and teachers. It's just yeah. once you find that thing and you know how to exploit it in the right way, it's brilliant because it, it sort of pulls people in because you can tell when someone really knows what what it is they're writing about. Yeah, um, sure. I, I want to ask you so many more questions. But I feel like I need to ask some of the watchers. Yeah, um, it looks like we have some great ones. Yeah, we have one from Fatima here. Is there a story or a subject matter that you've always wanted to write about, but you haven't had um, a chance to yet? I don't know. I mean, not not in particular. Like, I think it would be kind of fun to write more of like a more fantasy type book that had like a, a whole universe around it, but I wouldn't know how to do that at this point. You're writing an, a novel, your first novel though. Yeah. So in a way that's kind of, I mean, I know it's not a different necessarily subject matter, but it's, you know, it's your first time doing that, moving away from, from short stories, right? Yeah, and I'm writing, and that's um, a lot about airplanes and, and that's all I'll say, but there's, it's very plane focused. So I guess I'm writing about what I want to be writing about now and that's, right. I feel like it's very hard to think beyond whatever project I'm kind of immersed in. Do you find that writing in genre was something that you always gravitated towards? Because for me, it's only something very recent, like the last couple of years. And I think it was because, you know, I know what it is I like to write about. And I realized that if I didn't start looking at other ways of telling stories, I might sort of start boring myself and or other people but the sort of sci-fi or horror genre for you is kind of across the board in in the short stories did you start out in a in a different space yeah i think i you know especially when i was doing my mfa i was i was writing more realist fiction and thinking that that was kind of the only way to write uh, like serious fiction. And then it was reading uh, writers like Amelia Gray and George Saunders and Kelly Lank and Karen Russell and all these short story writers who were writing much weirder, like more genre inflected stories where I, I felt like, oh, I could actually do that and write something more weird. But sometimes I do, I mean, I guess that's a good answer to the question about like what I would wanna write about because I'm thinking now, I'm sort of longing to write something that doesn't have any genre elements and it's just, I'm thinking like, what if I strip all of that away and is there still, because I think that's more challenging in a way is to make something feel really compelling and new that is Has everything more like straight forward. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, I, I like both types of writing, you know, like I do really love speculative fiction and how it can help us get at deeper truths of like the human experience but yeah but I also yeah. you know I also love realist fiction so yeah maybe like going back and forth between them I think could be yeah could be fun yeah I think that sounds perfect for you we've got a question I, I just says Jay 
that asked what what were your influences and references as um, you were writing and um, what were the references for the adaptation to the screen I think for the adaptation to the screen we we mentioned a few didn't we in in the pitch mm -hmm. it was a mixture but now now I can't necessarily <laughs> it was like well like her um, and ex machina and those those were both um, like Sharon mentioned you know about like beguiling female AIs seducing men and yeah. making havoc and so this is like oh it's a gender flip and now it's you know it's the woman who's falling for a male robot or whatever and then also we talked about in tone like shows like Russian Doll and and normal people just and for, like, normal more, people yeah yeah that's right the romance of it had to yeah you in as as much as that like the we're very much into leaning into the genre, but you have to really, really care about these people. You have to care about a fake yeah. person as much as you care about, you know, the, the heroine. But what about in your um, short story writing? There, there's so many um, great short story writers that I'm sure have influenced you over the years. Are, are there any in particular that stand out? Yeah, like, well, those those writers I mentioned um, who are doing more, like, of the speculative stuff, like George Saunders and Kelly Link, and, but also, like, Alice Monroe, I read, like, all of her story collections when I was in MFA, and, you know, my stories are really different from, from hers, but I feel like she is, like, the real, you know, the master of the short story in our time or whatever. Um, so, and then growing up, I also watched a lot of TV, and I feel like, to be honest, like, TV was probably just as influential to me when I was younger as reading was, like, I... Were you a David Lynch fan, or are you a David Lynch fan? I am, a, yeah, I am a David Lynch fan, actually, um, probably more recently, like, within the last few years, I really love David Lynch, especially The Return, like, the, the Twin Peaks not reboot but like continuation i guess um i haven't seen that but, um, and weirdly it's only in the last little while that i've started getting i mean i'd always sort of in, enjoyed his films very very much and like he's definitely someone i think about when i when i read head in the floor or, or stuff like that yeah. i kind of think oh, that would be right up his street or someone like spike jones yeah twin peaks is a is a new thing that i'm discovering and it's such a it's such a gift i had no idea yeah. Yeah, Twin Peaks, and then well, and then Kafka too in the in the literary uh, realm. You know, I think yeah, yeah, sort of older older writers that are in that like absurdist vein, where I think it's like really funny, but really kind of flatly reported what's happening. And so yeah, I always well, I wanted to ask Kafka. you about that actually. The 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 funny, you're you're so funny, uh, Kate, and. And I wonder how much of that is is an effort, or how much of it is just naturally just just comes out as you're as you write. Is it something that you have to really put your back into, or is it just naturally how how you tend to deliver those scenarios? Yeah, I think it's natural. I think whenever I try to do it, it's it's not funny and it's, it's <laughs> yeah <bad. laughs> embarrassing. So. Yeah, maybe it's just like the way I write, and I, I mean, I think I'm a lot funnier in writing than I am like in conversation or whatever. But probably that goes back to like I always say, you know, one of my biggest influences was The Simpsons, which I, you know, like the golden era of The Simpsons of seasons, oh, yeah. like two to ten or whatever, which I watched constantly in syndication, like when I was a kid, and I think that really helped form my like sensibility and sense of humor and even like politics and all it's just like all in that in those it's, episodes so yeah I, I often sort of uh, reference animation as, as my biggest tv influences and and joys and it, it doesn't really make any sense to people because they clearly don't see it in my work at all but it, it's definitely it's definitely a thing I'm just going to give you one more question because I think we've got um, a few minutes left. What is it like um, adapting the concise form of a short story into a series that unfolds over many episodes? Yeah, what do you think? <laughs> What's it like? <laughs> I just think, thank God there was two stories, you know, to, to, yeah. to do it from. I think it depends on, it depends on the story. I, I think with your work, it's easy because... There's, it's so rich. There's so, even even your sort of smaller characters who are just sort of referenced by name in a couple of paragraphs. I, I, I felt, I'm sure you felt the same. Just it didn't take much to sort of 
flesh them out into living, breathing sort of ensemble players. And I think it involves a lot of extra Im imagination and, and work. But if, if the world is really formed, then that's sort of half the battle, isn't it? Yeah, I think, and I've, I've heard that adapting short stories is a lot easier than like adapting a whole novel. Maybe I've heard that for like, for making a film that, you know, a lot of films are adapted from short stories and it actually works pretty well. Whereas a novel can be kind of more difficult because there's so much going on. Yeah, I, I mean, but, my only other experience of it was uh, adapting um, uh, an article and that, I felt like the world was all there, but that was only for a half hour thing. But yeah, I can imagine actually compared to adapting a novel, which must be a real pain in the arse. I mean, <laughs> it can work uh, beautifully and um, it's definitely something I, I want to do, but it's it's a big old endeavor, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's almost easier, like, because with Big Sur and taking that and adapting it, into our show, I think a lot of the work was um, developing like the the secondary characters and their relationships and their arcs and that kind of thing. So you're right, it was like already there, but it's like taking the elements that are kind of already there in a in a spare way and fleshing those out more so that it's more of a full world for like a TV show. Whereas yeah. in a story, maybe you can just you know leave it at that and have people imagine. Yeah, I, I, that was another thing I, I wondered about your writing. In so many, so many of the stories, I thought, how did you decide where to leave it? Because so many of the stories felt massive, and and could have gone anywhere. And like with a short story, it must be it must take such determination to know exactly where you want to take it and just stick with that. Do you know, rather than sort of yeah. going out in different tangents or or possibly even deciding it's a full-length idea. I mean, just to stick yeah. to that, that's what I'm telling. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of it's trial and error, too, because a lot of times I do try to expand something, and it feels like I can kind of feel if it's not working, like it doesn't have the same energy, and I don't feel the same energy in pursuing it. And so a lot of times I need to try different things to find out yeah. what has the heat behind it. So. And also, I suppose it allows you to um, pick up that thread in in a, in a different story further down the line, just the way with uh, like without there and, and Big Sur, you know that yeah. you, you can that that world, I guess, doesn't just close its door on you. It's still there to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, I never delete anything. It's all it's all there to scavenge through and <laughs> make something yeah. else from. So, um, well, look, we've we've um we've run over, but. I just wanted to thank you for writing this incredible book that <laughs> is covered in post-its. And thank you to everyone for listening as well. It was really, really fun to talk to you. And thanks to the London Review Bookshop for hosting us. This has been Yes, thank you, London Review wonderful. Bookshop. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.